0: Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. I'm Phil Harland, a prof at York University. We're dealing with visions of the end in ancient Judean and Christian literature, We've introduced Daniel in the previous episode, the book of Daniel. Now we're turning to Daniel as an example of the genre of apocalypse, a visionary account, but more specifically an example of the historical apocalypse, this category scholars have come to develop in order to categorize these types of writings. In other words, this is an example of a visionary account as veiled history, and we'll get into that more fully today. Now that we have a quick sketch of the crisis situation that led him to write, now let's get into Daniel chapter 7 to 12. We can see how the visions that the authors of Daniel chapter 7 to 12 express directly relate to history, directly relate to this situation of Antiochus during the 160s BCE and directly outline some of the history that preceded that crisis. So let's turn to scanning through some of the important elements in in the Apocalypse proper. Remember that apocalyptic thinkers often think in terms of periods of history, and the way that the author of chapter 2 and the author of the Apocalypse in Daniel think of it is in terms of four periods of history, with the final fifth period being the blissful kingdom of God. We'll be able to unpack more fully now, though, looking at these visions, what history is in mind here that leads uh, scholars to talk about this chapter 7 to 12 of Daniel of the historical apocalypse variety, namely that in many ways, the material we find in these visions is veiled history, that the focus uh, of attention is still on the end of times, is still on judgment, but that in the process, there are allusions and sort of veiled references to actual historical events The whole historical focus of this uh, whole discussion are those four kingdoms that were mentioned in chapter two and get built up in a particular way here. Take a look at chapter seven of Daniel to begin with. Chapter seven to 12 is an example of an apocalypse proper. It's only at that point where it becomes a first person visionary account where Daniel says, I saw this, I saw that, and that the entire story structure of this belongs together here, chapters 7 to 12. In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. Sometimes in Daniel it's visions while he's awake, sometimes it's visions in his dreams. And so that's the way that the author expresses how these visions were received. I, Daniel, saw in my vision by night the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. So here we have a vision of a sea and beasts coming out of the sea. Now those of you who remember a few episodes back might already have something in mind here, and that is that the sea in ancient Mesopotamia and also in Ugaritic and in Israelite culture, that the sea is a chaotic threat. For example, in some of the myths slaying the sea, the creation takes place by destroying and separating chaos that order is established by God. And that we're once again in the combat myth sort of context here when we look at the vision in chapter 7 of Daniel. But there's more to the combat myth here that you'll soon see. So these four great beasts are, first of all, a lion that had wings like an eagle. Secondly, a beast that looks like a bear. Thirdly, a beast that looks like a leopard. And fourthly, a beast with many horns, ten horns. And I was considering the horns, it says in verse 8, when another horn appeared, a little one, a little horn coming up among them to make room for it. Three of the earlier horns were plucked up by the roots. There were eyes like human eyes in this horn, and a mouse speaking arrogantly. So here we have four beasts, and further study of this will reveal that the most likely candidates for the four kingdoms are the kingdoms that were in mind in chapter two, namely the Babylonian kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar and others. Beast number one. Beast number two, the Median kingdom, in the mindset of this author. Beast number three, the Persian kingdom. And beast number four, the Hellenistic kingdoms. And it turns out, when we analyze this more carefully as historians, that the little horn that emerges among the ten horns on the head of this fourth beast is, in fact, the current king at the time the author is writing, Antiochus IV. Anticus Epiphanes, is the king in the 160s BCE Then the context in which this author is writing. Let's move on, and we'll soon come back to that historical context. In essence, chapter 7 is the judgment of these four beasts, is the slaying of these threatening beasts, and the establishment of God's kingdom. In a way, chapter 7 of Daniel is the combat myth writ large, It's God slaying the beast in order to establish his own kingdom. It's also a court sort of setting that is given to us. Daniel says, as I watched in verse 9, thrones were set in place and an ancient one, God, took his throne. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames and its wheels were burning fire a stream of fire issued and flowed out from his presence. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood attending him. The court sat in judgment. Here we're having what we had seen in First Enoch, a common characteristic of apocalyptic literature, is the vision of God seated on a throne. Here, though, the vision is the vision of God in court Judging and destroying, ultimately, these beasts that represent the kingdoms of the earth, that represent Babylonia, Media, Persia, and the Hellenistic kings, especially Antiochus Epiphanes. It's that little horn, the final beast, that is particularly being judged here. God is judging that threatening evil fourth beast and its evil horn. I watched then, it says in verse 11, because of the noise of the arrogant words that the horn was speaking. And as I watched, the beast was put to death and its body destroyed. Here is the combat myth. Here is the God slaying the chaotic monster, but it's an evil monster already. It's evil personified. Anticus Epiphanes, here being represented as the horn on the final beast, is evil personified for the book of Daniel. Daniel doesn't have Satan. He doesn't have that term. He doesn't have evil personified as the devil. doesn't have Satan. doesn't even have those fallen angels that we read about in First Enoch that will later develop into Satan. Instead, he has these beasts. And the final beast is especially personified evil for the book of Daniel because of the final horn in particular being Anticus Epiphanes that has done terrible things in Judea in the time of this author. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being, or one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the ancient one and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingship, that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. So here we have the whole sequence of the apocalyptic scenario coming to us in this first vision. An evil situation where evil personified is ruling. God sitting in judgment over evil and destroying evil. God setting up his perfect kingdom. And establishing one like a human being, one like a son of man, as king over this God's kingdom. As God's uh, representative, as the ruler over this kingdom. This phrase, one like a human being, or one like a son of man. Son of man was an Aramaic way of saying human being. And in the book of Daniel, it becomes quite clear when you look at that language in various parts of Daniel, that it is talking about an angelic figure. In fact, it's most likely that in chapter 7, as Collins also argues, that the archangel Michael is primarily in mind here in verse 13 in this figure of, I saw one like a human being. So that it is the archangel Michael that is set up over the kingdom that God establishes, the eternal kingdom that replaces the four beasts that have been destroyed, that replaces especially the Hellenistic kingdom of Antiochus Epiphanes. Take a look at verses 23 and following. When the angel is starting to explain the vision to the visionary, this is characteristic of the apocalyptic genre, as we're already seeing. An interpreting angel is usually present, helping out the visionary in terms of understanding what the visions mean. And the angel explains to him about the fourth beast. As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth that shall be different from all the other kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. Further on, verse 26, Then the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion, that fourth, the horn of the fourth beast, shall be taken away to be consumed and totally destroyed. The kingship and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the Most Holy Ones of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom." As we explained earlier, all of this has a direct relation to the situation during the Maccabean period when Antichus Epiphanes was taking action against the internal strife that was happening within Judea. And as a result of some of his actions, the temple was violated in some way in the view of many Judeans and that his soldiers also violated the temple in some way during this period, that all of this is in mind in the author in the judgment of Antiochus Epiphanes, represented by this fearsome evil beast that is destroyed by God and God's kingdom set up. So this end-time scenario that we're seeing here of judgment and the establishment of God's kingdom and the destruction of historical powers, the kingdoms that preceded it, gets repeated in Daniel in different ways. In a way, when you move on to the vision, second vision in chapter 8 and subsequent visions in other chapters, it's not new information. It's a new vision that re-expresses in a different way that same apocalyptic scenario that is, that's a part of this worldview that the authors, Daniel's chapter 7 to 12, hold. So chapter 8 Is a vision of a ram and a male goat. Once again there's a horn involved in the male goat to represent Antichus Epiphanes once again. You can take a look at that vision. I won't go into details except to say that it's once again telling the history of kingdoms, in this case Medes and Persians as a ram, and the Alexander and Hellenistic kingdoms as the male goat It's in chapter 8, though, that I want to draw your attention to a phrase that is used that directly links up with that historical context that draws attention, again, to the idea of Daniel chapter 7 to 12 as an example of this genre, historical apocalypse. And that is the desolating sacrilege or the transgression that makes desolate. Chapter 8, verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one that spoke, for how long is this vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled? This desolating sacrilege is a key event in the mind of this author, and a key event in the mind of the Maccabees who revolted against Antiochus Epiphanes, and that is the setting up of an altar for Baal Shamim, most likely a Syrian god identified with the Greek god Zeus Olympius, was set up within the Judean temple in Jerusalem. And that some Syrian soldiers who perhaps, without understanding what this would be considered as a violation against Judean law, set up for themselves an altar to worship their god within the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem. And for the book of Daniel, this is the desolating sacrilege. Or there's a variety of ways in which this can be translated in your Bibles. But that idea recurs several places in Daniel chapters 7 to 12. And it seems to be the main symbol of the crisis. The crisis that tells you you're living in the end times. That you're living in the most evil age. And that the most dire and evil things have been done. And that God is about to intervene in the mindset of this particular author. Moving ahead here in Daniel chapter 9 actually is less of a vision and more of a prayer combined with an interpretation of the years of exile as mentioned in the book of uh, Jeremiah in the Hebrew Bible. But let's move on to the vision in chapter 10. Chapters 10 to 11 of Daniel are a new vision in which the details of the story of the Hellenistic kings, of the Ptolemies in the south and of the Seleucids in the north. These are two different Hellenistic kingdoms, as I mentioned earlier, that were struggling with one another and that Israel was caught in the middle in this struggle. And often the allegiances between people in Israel and Ptolemaic kingdom in the south and Israel and the Seleucid kingdom in the north were causing trouble here. And a lot of struggles were going on between the two kingdoms and Israel was caught in the middle. Judea was caught in the middle. And so chapters 10 and 11 go into the details of this. And this is where you really see this characteristic of the historical apocalypse. Here Daniel sees a vision while he's awake and he's in a trance in chapter 10. And it's a vision of the end of days again, in his view. And God is revealing to him the end of days. And an angel is there to help him understand what these visions mean. It goes into details about different kings doing different things. A king of the south, namely Ptolemies, shall grow strong, but one of his officers shall grow stronger than he and shall rule a realm greater than his own realm. After some years they shall make an alliance. And the daughter of the king of the south, the Ptolemies, shall come to the king of the north, the Seleucids, to ratify the agreement but she shall not retain her power, and his offspring shall not endure. This is all documenting Hellenistic history of the mid-third century, of the two, around 250 BCE. Those of you who study Hellenistic history in detail would be able to identify these, and so scholars who know about the details of that history have spent time identifying who is being referred to in these different contexts here of the King of the South versus the King of the North. Chapter 11, verses 29 and following, take a look at as further examples of what a, an historical apocalypse is like. And this is getting close to the end of days here in the scenario. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, the king of the north, but this time it shall not be as it was before. So the Seleucid king, Epiphanes invading the south, the Ptolemies in Egypt. For kings of Kittim, this is a term that's used for Romans in Daniel and in the Dead Sea Scrolls, as we'll soon see. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall lose heart and withdraw. The Romans will assist the Ptolemies in warding off Antichus Epiphanes and the Seleucids. He, Antichus Epiphanes is being talked about here, shall be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay heed to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces sent by him shall occupy and profane the temple and fortress. They shall abolish the regular burnt offering and set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with intrigue those who violate the covenant, but the people who are loyal to their God shall stand firm and take action. The wise among the people shall give understanding to many. For some days, however, they shall fall by the sword and flame. Further on, some of the wise shall fall, so that they may be refined, purified, and cleansed until the time of the end. For there is still an interval until the time appointed. So here in a veiled way, we have the story of Antichus Epiphanes taking military action against the Ptolemies, being unsuccessful in that military action and on the way back from Egypt going to Jerusalem and quelling what he considered to be a revolt, an internal civil strife within Jerusalem and at that time took actions against the temple itself that were considered sacrilege by a good number of Judeans at the time including especially the Maccabees but also this author of this document. In conjunction with these actions, this violation of the temple, the reference here to the abomination that makes desolate is referring to the altar that was set up by those Syrian soldiers, probably in, devoted to Baal Shamim in the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem. So this is what we mean by veiled history. Nowhere does it explicitly tell you it's Antichus Epiphanes, but if you know your history, you begin to see that Daniel's visions are walking their way through history up to the time of Antichus Epiphanes, which for this author is the end time. It's verse 36 and following of chapter 11. The king shall act as he pleases. He shall exalt himself and consider himself greater than any god and shall speak horrendous things against the god of gods. In other words, the Judean god. He shall prosper until the period of wrath is completed. For what is determined shall be done. Determinism is an important characteristic of the apocalyptic worldview that we're seeing here. In essence, what we're seeing here is a repetition of the judgment that was spoken of in the earlier vision in chapter 7, namely the judgment of that fourth beast and the little horn that is the same as Anticus Epiphanes, here being re-expressed in a different way in this uh, subsequent vision within the apocalypse proper. Let's turn now to chapter 12, which is really the culmination of the end time intervention of God and it has an important characteristic that we need to note here that uh, becomes very important within the apocalyptic worldview and subsequent developments and that is the notion of a resurrection at the end times take a look at chapter 12 at that time Michael the archangel uh, the great prince the protector of your people shall shall arise there shall be a time of anguish such as has never occurred since nations first came into existence. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Many of those who are asleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise, remember that the author of this document identifies himself among the wise, shall shine like the brightness of the sky, like stars, and those who lead many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, keep the word secret and the book sealed until the time of the end. Remember here that the author's keeping up the scenario of this having been written in the 500s BCE, and Daniel's sealing up what he writes in the 500s BCE in exile to be opened in the time of Anticus Epiphanes, to be opened in the end times. We as historians know that the author is here writing in the time of Anticus Epiphanes and this is just a clever way of having it, both the legendary Daniel being the pseudepigraphic author and having the idea of time between when these visions were received and the end time. But what I wanted you to really note here is this mentioned to many of those who are asleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Here we're having referred to the notion of the resurrection of bodies in the end time and the judgment of evil and wicked people, which was implied already quite clearly in First Enoch. And actually, there are allusions to resurrection in First Enoch that we didn't get to discuss last week. But here we have it a little more blatantly stated. What's interesting is that for the author of Daniel, it's many, not all, human beings that will be raised in the end times. Many of those who are asleep. It seems most likely, as Collins has pointed out, that the idea that the author of Daniel has here is that the most wicked and the most righteous, including the wise that he explicitly identifies, will be raised at the end times and judged. Here he finishes off the document with this compartmentalization of humanity into two groups, the wicked and the wise. Many shall be purified and cleansed and refined, but the wicked shall continue to act wickedly. None of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. But you go your way, he's talking to Daniel, and rest. You shall rise for your reward at the end of days. So it finishes with addressing Daniel himself in the vision here as being among the wise who will be raised and go on to everlasting life at the end times. Remember that earlier on, the author had already expressed in the first vision the idea of the setting up of God's eternal kingdom led by the archangel Michael. And that that is the kingdom in which the wise go on to an everlasting life. Remember that earlier in the visions, he had already expressed the judgment of the wicked, the judgment of the wicked king, at least, and the destruction of evil that would precede the establishment of that kingdom. So we're seeing the apocalyptic worldview now. We're beginning to understand what is involved in it. And we're also seeing here an historical apocalypse in the sense that much of the book of Daniel is veiled history, is telling the story of Anticus Epiphanes, and of the Hellenistic kings before him in a veiled way, and showing the ultimate judgment of God and control of God over history, and that the God of the Judeans is the God of history, who determines what will happen, and who will ultimately set up his own kingdom, which will replace all those other kingdoms that existed before. So I hope you've enjoyed this discussion of Daniel, and I hope you'll come again.